Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. It's us. Hello. Our dirty laundry. It's Mandy. It's Katie. A, a very um, allergy-infected Katie right now. Oh, I hope sure. my voice, maybe my voice sounds extra sultry, but <laughs> I, this time of year, especially because we're not really going inside anywhere again, we're just outside, and so my seasonal allergies have flared up, so hopefully it's okay to listen to my voice yeah. and not it's aggravating. Great. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. My dad was like a newscaster growing up and we always Mm -hmm. used to tease him about like, like when he'd answer the phone, he'd have his like TV voice. Hello. (laughs) And then when he talked like a normal person to everybody else, you know, but he had this like very professional radio TV voice. So I don't, I don't want to fall into that because otherwise my family will make fun of me (laughs) to no end. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we should say who we are for people who are not here. (laughs) Clearly my dad was a professional. I would not. Yes. Welcome everybody. (laughs) I'm Katie. I co-host this podcast with my childhood white girlfriend, Mandy. And we dig into the histories of white women and their complicity in white supremacy. And that is a giant landfill that we need very large backhoes for. For it's not yeah. just like a little dirt pile. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a whole yeah. There's heck a lot of a lot. Stuff. And if you are just joining us, we are currently talking about eugenics. Um, we're dedicating this season, as we call it, or I know. I feel like it just whatever. became its own it season. I don't I know. know because we were talking about white women in slavery before that. We talked about white women um, and the suffragist movement. But I really do think that this eugenics, we were originally thinking of it as being part of this season we called the haters, like women with the intention. Racism was like their ends, not just their means. But yeah. I actually eugenics, the, everything that you've been teaching us, it does feel like this weird mix of both almost like a lot of these women probably identified as progressives and yep. just believed that what they were doing was, you know, improving the human race. And their arguments are so, so, so similar to the suffragists making arguments about who should get to vote. Yep. It's just eugenics were like, and then let's apply that logic to who should get to live to and to and reproduce. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. it's the same logic. So in some ways, I think it's almost like a part two of season one. It's I don't know. It's its own thing. Who cares yeah. what season it is? It's depressing <laughs> and awful, and we need to know it. <laughs> yes. And we are moving into talking about a really terrible, terrible topic of forced sterilization. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's long, long long and deep history in the United States, which is really disturbing when you start digging into it. So, um, which let's just say, I think this is one of those things that, Oh shoot. I meant to bring this book down. My, my bedside table book right now is this book by Alicia Garza. And -hmm. now I can't even think of the title. Do you know the title? Cause I think you're reading it too. The purpose of power. The purpose of power. That's right. Mm -hmm. And the section I just read last night, she was talking about one of her early organizing jobs was working in an organization that was adjacent to Planned Parenthood and that they had like a Margaret Sanger day and that she had learned Mm -hmm. about Margaret Sanger's bullshittery and white lady fuckery and was like, no, I'm not going to celebrate that. So I know that like people know this history who've been impacted by it. But I think for many, many white people and white women in particular, the entire history of eugenics is just not on our radar. And the specifically the history of forced sterilization is not on our radar. Yes, but it should be because the ideas behind it are really not gone. And we'll get into some of the ways they're still present, um, Mm. probably in the next episode after this one. This one, we're just Mm going to kind of go in the background. And you probably noted this is coming out late. Um, This will probably come out tomorrow, which will be Tuesday if you're listening when it actually comes out. Because we recorded it last week, and then I felt like it was a little disjointed and then wanted to kind of clean things up a little bit. So anyway, we're re-recording. 
recording. That's why it's late. <laughs> it's good. But I think we're also wanting to be really, really good about citing sources. And I, I yeah. know I was like peppering you with questions like, who's this article by? Who's that article by? And, and like not having it at our fingertips always, but that that's a huge priority that we have. And that's actually another episode we want to do moving forward is about the politics of citation. There's, we don't need to get into this too much right now, but do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about like the recent scandal that people are responding to? Yeah, people might know if you, especially if you're on Instagram, um, the scandal that's going on right now around the page that has become wildly popular called So You Want to Talk About. Um, and it's someone who started this Instagram page and then makes these like very succinct graphics addressing a lot of contemporary issues. Um, and it became really popular because they're super easy to share. They break down information of what's going on. Um, and a lot of people have really liked how they can utilize those talking points in their conversations mm -hmm. with people. But it has become, um, recently like enlightened people that this is very problematic because initially this account was run by someone who was really not clear about who they were. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it can easily be confused with a book by nearly the same title called. So you want to talk about race, um, that is by a black author, what? Tell me her name again. I'm like blanking. You, Oluo um, is Oluo. her last name. Okay. Yeah. Ijeoma. I I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so I need to look at that. But Ijeoma yeah. Oluo is her. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you don't, when you weren't really, when the page is not really clear about who is running it, and there's such a similar title, a lot of people assumed that it was run by that person, and then it's not. Um, and that was also like clearly being assumed, but never corrected is my understanding also. Yeah. Initially like, it was not corrected at all. At some point um, in the past several months, there was a disclaimer put on the top that it was not associated with that book, but then still not really clear about who it was associated with mm -hmm. until the woman who happens to be a white woman running mm -hmm. the account got a book deal based mm -hmm. on the account to write a book that's based on the, so you want to talk about series. And then people came out and were like, okay, now we know who this is and it's clearly not the author of the book. So you want to talk about race, but it clearly like is taking from that idea and has not given credit and has done mm -hmm. nothing to address this whole problem anyway. So that's been going on in the past week. So just something we're going to get deeper into maybe in a mini sode. Yeah. And, and if, and when like we cite things, we always have all of our references on our website, our dirty laundry um, our influences, but also the very, very specific citations. And we're constantly <laughs> recommending people to read the books that we're reading. They're so good to read the scholarship we're reading. And I, I myself, I'm a scholar and know how frustrating it is to have your work be appropriated or not be cited, you know, in a way yeah. that just honors the the work and intellectual labor that you put into something. And especially for scholars of color, especially women scholars of color, that isn't okay to use their work and not acknowledge where it came from. So yeah. we're just wanting to be super, super careful that we're always referencing and citing and shouting out the scholars whose work we are so grateful for, because that's, we see our job as like reading all the stuff that other, that our listeners might not have time to read and mm -hmm. giving you like the quick and dirty synopsis to to lead you down rabbit holes and and get you interested in these histories and help bring us all up to speed a little bit more but we're you know we want to make sure that we are acknowledging the scholarship that went into that that allows yeah. us to do this project yep exactly so okay. now we're going to talk about sterilization so <sighs> the, the the recap on where we've been talking about eugenics, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. which is basically the idea that you can speed up natural selection through selective breeding or the stopping of breeding um, to bring more desirable, and that quotes. is defined by yeah <laughs> in quotes <laughs> by in quotes by people who were in power at the time um, traits about in society and get rid of the ones that are less desirable in quotes. So my question then, when we've been talking about the people who are involved in the early eugenics movement in the United States is like, how does this go from a bunch of 
like racist douchebags, racist, ableist, whatever douchebags just Mm -hmm. sitting around, like throwing these ideas back and forth to becoming like this state sanctioned for sterilization practice. Like where did this jump take place? Mm -hmm. Um, But it really is just in local politics, which brings back the idea that these local things that are happening in communities are very, very important. And we need to be mindful of them still today because that's where these movements start. So we're, can I ask you a question yeah. real quick? Mm-hmm. Sorry, before you jump in, because I know you have a master's among your many accomplishments in <laughs> the field of medicine that you have a master's in public health. And I think that when you, when you look at like the, the science quote science behind eugenics and then public policy, that's where those intersect or yeah. is thinking about public health. Yep. So yep. when you were getting your master's degree, to what extent did you learn these histories, talk about these histories, talk about like the dangers of how something like a horrible quote science, you know, that isn't, but yeah. how something like that could jump to public policy. And did, to what extent was that part of your, you know, your program? I mean, admittedly, I think I brought this up before. I have a terrible memory. So <laughs> I apologize to any of my professors who are not listening to this. I'm going to just go ahead and say that <laughs> because I got my public health degree at Brigham Young University and okay. they're not listening to this. And there's podcast. no white people if there. You, just yeah. kidding. <laughs> if you are listening, let me know because I'd be interested. Anyway, mm. um, I don't remember learning about eugenics Mm. and public health when I was getting my degree at all. I'm sure we talked about the ethics of where public health programs can go um, in other areas and in general. But sterilization, eugenics, all of that, I don't remember it at all, which seems crazy now that I'm getting more into the history. Because clearly these people, as misled or just nefarious as they were in their um, actions at the time, thought that public health was one of the main goals of this, of these programs. So you would Mm -hmm. think that it should be in the background of that. So hopefully public health programs are broaching that today. um, I mean, with just the more, yeah, yes. Let us know what, what is happening in public health programs. I'm sure it depends on the program, but like, it just seems the more that you are teaching us and the more that I'm trying to soak up on the side is, is just how prevalent this was. It wasn't Mm -hmm. hidden. It wasn't secret. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like some, you know, fringe dude in some back office of a bureau. You know, it was like very common policy across the nation and widely accepted by people in power for a long time. And so you would think that something that awful would be, addressed in the yeah. program. So it, it, I mean, you say it's shocking and I know we say this all the time, like it's both shocking and also not surprising at all. Because yeah. when you think about how this is because we live in a white supremacist society, it, it, it shouldn't surprise us that this history would be hidden or downplayed. And especially because so much of it is lingering today, then yeah. it it's like it can kind of quote hide in plain sight. Although again, to stress that there are definitely people who have always known this history and like mm-hmm. have always yeah. wanted to make sure it's more widely known. But yeah, I, I mean, I really don't know very much about this at all. So I'm excited to learn more about it. <laughs> Super excited. I mean, excited, but <laughs> right, like as I we feel, always are. You know, it's important. Compelled. Like, it feels feel like compelled. A, yes, it does feel very compelling. So. Where we're at in this time period is post-Civil War, Mm post-Reconstruction, starting this like era of industrialization. There's lots of immigration and some people are starting to flip their shit because stuff is changing, which people really hate, especially people who have had it good before things are changing, Mm -hmm. which is generally like people who are upper class in power and white then and now. Um, so they're freaking out about all these things. And there's two problems that they see really. And one is the people that are coming into the United States at this point in time that they think are, quote, degrading the national stock. And that mm. is being approached by things that we've addressed a little bit before um, with immigration. 
Mm. And they start doing all of these immigration acts. Like I looked back at the history of immigration acts in the United States. And there are a few in like the late 1700s. And then it really dies off until post-Civil War, like 1870 on, you just Mm. see this huge rush of immigration acts taking place Mm. throughout the country. Um, Mm. And this um, is where they're restricting who can come into the country. And then when when these people are in the country, what kind of rights they have. And we kind of talked about this Mm -hmm. back in suffrage when we talked about the Immigration Act of 1924, like limiting voting rights acts and who had the right to even become a citizen and then be able to vote and all of that kind of stuff. I think Um, it was really stunned by the numbers that you gave us about um, people immigrating from many Asian countries specifically, that that's really like another history that is not commonly taught in schools or, or commonly known among, you know, a lot of the early, yeah. A lot of the early anti-immigration acts were very anti-Asian immigration. There was a huge, Mm -hmm. huge focus on that. But in Mm -hmm. 1924 is then when they also implemented that national origins formula, where it was like a percentage of people that were already, whatever that population was, that was already represented in the United States. That's, all that could come in then from other countries, they were trying to basically keep the representation of countries equalized or and mm-hmm. more Eurocentric because that was what mm-hmm. the huge mm-hmm. base the population was. And they didn't want that being outnumbered by non-European countries. So they came up with these national mm-hmm. origins formulas and these quotas and caps on immigration. Um, but then you have the problem of how do we deal with the people that are already here that don't fit our categories of what we think is fit and whatever. And that was really addressed by eugenics. Um, Mm -hmm. And the options of how you deal with those people is either, is there a way to assimilate them or is there a way to annihilate them basically to get rid of them? Um, And breeding was definitely one of those things that they talked about. So people are starting to talk about all of these eugenic ideas, and then they're turning them into proposals in their local and state governments for how we control these quote unquote undesirable populations in society. And so the 19 early 1900s is really when this whole thing that's known as the colony movement started. And so these are colonies that are created and funded by states that are institutions to care for and detain people that fit into these categories of the disabled, like, of the deranged. Those, those verbs don't really go together. Care, care for, for and, and detain. detain. Like those seem like, care for seems like a quite the euphemism. Right, exactly. Which is how they termed it in order to make mm-hmm. it seem nice and proper. You know, like we're mm-hmm. going to take care of this problem. If mm-hmm. we separate these people from society then we remove that. But then we also, they were also segregating them within those societies. So obviously men and women are not together. You just want to stop these people from having sex, stop them from procreating. And then the thought was you could get rid of this issue that people were having. Um, But Mm. then this becomes another issue because obviously they're finding like vast amount of people that they think should go to these colonies and the whole quote caring for these people becomes very expensive. They're like, what do we do with these people? Are we going to keep them here forever? A lot of times they were just keeping people there um, until they were past reproductive age. And then it was like, oh, they can't have kids anymore. They're no longer going to cause problems. We'll let them go. Yeah. You're not a threat anywhere (sighs) anymore. We'll just let them go. But this is getting expensive. So they're like, well. God, if we our just, racism is really expensive. Yeah, this is How hard, can guys. we, our we classism, make this cheaper. our elitism, like our shittery, right. How can we save money and not like, oh, maybe our bigotry is wrong, but just like, no. Well, and listen, like this is still a huge problem today. Like there's a, we have a very unaddressed problem of how we care for people that really legitimately do need more care than is out there publicly. I mean, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of problems have very, or a lot of States have large homelessness problems that are, have always been linked to, you know, mental health disorders Mm -hmm. and addictions and all of that Mm -hmm. kind of thing that we just don't address because we don't want to pay for it as a society and it costs money. 
That's the same. I mean, there's like a spectrum of logic here. Like everything you're describing with these quote colonies, I'm like, oh, that's just a hop, skip and a jump away from a concentration camp, honestly. And I know you have something to talk about with Hitler too, but it's like also not that far removed from being like, I, you know, I'm not going to pay for somebody else's blah, blah, blah. Like they don't deserve access to healthcare or those people don't deserve X, Y, or Z. It's like, it's just the same continuum of logic that like there's something wrong with those people that don't deserve my help or whatever. It's see, it's not seeing us as interconnected. It's not understanding the context that people are navigating. It's not, it's, it's such a selfish, limited view of the world. And it's like you, you start there. I don't want to say that like, Oh, people who don't support, social security or Nazis. I don't, I'm just saying like, it's this, it's like the kernel of an idea that you just keep building like a snowball Mm -hmm. down a mountain Mm -hmm. and it takes you to really gross places. I don't know. I know I don't want to get ahead of you with that. No, no, it can go all sorts of places, but historically we've been terrible at actually addressing these problems without turning it Mm -hmm. into some awful racist, like ableist, terrible thing. Like we Can do you here. give me like the time period that you're talking about right now? Like, so still these are early 1900s. So okay. early 1900s um, are when these colonies start. Um, like 19, I mean, some of them were probably late 1800s even, but like mm. 1907, 1909 are some of the dates associated with when mm. these colonies and institutions get started. Um, mm. So and so this, by 1917... 31 of the 48 states at that time had homes or colonies for the feeble minded. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. they were at this point in time, they're mostly women, Mm -hmm. mostly of course, poor women. Mm -hmm. um, And then mostly white too. So uh, there's a huge problem with like sterilization and people of color, um, Mm -hmm. minority communities, which we're going to talk about probably in the next episode. But at this point in time in the early 1920s, these are poor white women for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a psychologist and eugenicist at the time named Lewis Terman, who said he was talking about um, criminality and these, the poet, can't talk criminality and the potential for these people to become criminals. And he said, not all criminals are feeble minded, but all feeble minded persons are at least potential criminals. What? That, yeah, <laughs> I know. Good, good idea. <laughs> yeah. Here's, here's oh another, God. here's another gem that every feeble minded woman is a potential prostitute would hardly be disputed <laughs> by anyone. Obviously. moral judgment like business judgment social judgment or any other kind of higher thought process is a function of intelligence morality cannot flower and fruit if intelligence remains infantile so the idea is that all of these dumb Uh, women however that was defined would then they are incapable of being moral so obviously they're just going to become prostitutes and then just go and spread their immorality and feeble-mindedness all over the place, clearly. Um, Who was that guy? Who said his that? name was Lewis Turman. So he's a psychologist. Turdman? Yes. Turdman. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, very similar ideas. This was in the 1909 Journal of Psychoesthetics. And they said, feeble-minded women are almost invariably immoral and if at large, usually become carriers of venereal disease or give birth to children who are as defective as themselves. The feeble-minded woman who marries is twice as prolific as the normal woman. (laughs) What the (laughs) hell does that even mean? There's no class of persons in our whole population who, unfit (sighs) for unit, are so dangerous or so expensive to the state. This Mm. accepts no class, not even the violently insane. They are as much dangerous and expensive to the ordinary than the ordinary insane or the ordinary feeble-minded or the ordinary male criminal. Why is this? 
They are dangerous because being irresponsible, wholly or in part, they become the prey of the lower class of vile men and are the most fertile source for the spread of all forms of venereal disease. They have not the sense or the understanding to avoid disease or any care as to its spread. They are the most expensive to the state because they are the most fruitful source of disease and mentally Mm -hmm. defective children who are apt to become state charges. So... It's just so absurd on its face. And then, yeah, as you were finishing up, I was like, I bet we both could walk outside and find people that agree with that. Oh, yeah. It, absolutely. Still today. They'd be like, true. <sighs> Let's do something about it. Facts. Facts. That's science. Yeah. <laughs> so Ugh. the first compulsory sterilization law passed in Indiana in 1907 Um, then followed closely behind by California in 1909. Um, Mm -hmm. But many of these colonies were practicing sterilization without it even being state law. And the most famous of those was the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and the Feeble-Minded, which was run by one Dr. Albert Pritty, P-R-I-D-D-Y. Okay. Who seemed to sincerely believe in the humanity and compassion of his work that he was really helping these people and that this was necessary (sighs) for society. But he also had a bit of an ego on him. Surprise, surprise, because he's playing God. Um, Mm -hmm. So he's doing these sterilizations basically without there being a law in Virginia yet to allow it. And this really interesting case, which we didn't talk about when we recorded this last week, but this gives the good background to what we did talk about. So there's this really interesting case with Dr. Purdy and the Virginia state colony and a man named George Mallory. So George Mallory is working at a sawmill outside of Richmond, Virginia, and he had to leave his home for several weeks at a time for his work. He had this large family with a lot of daughters and his wife. And he came home one weekend after being away from working and most of his family was gone. Some of his children had been sent to foster care. And then his wife and two of his daughters were taken to the Virginia colony because apparently there were some social workers and the police were watching this man's home while he was gone and thought that they were running a brothel Mm. because his wife was there alone and there was all these female children. Mm -hmm. So they took his family while he was gone and a few of them got sent to this Virginia colony. So Mallory gets back and he hires a lawyer and the lawyer brings up a case against Dr. Pretty. And he was pissed because he's this high mighty doctor who thinks of himself as very intelligent and getting to decide who gets to, you know, basically live in society and who doesn't. And here's this man who's just like a farm worker sawmill person who brings this lawsuit against him. Mm. um, And he thinks that this is not acceptable. So Mm -hmm. he got taken to court. And while they didn't award any damages to Mallory, the judge told Dr. Purdy that he had to stop what he was doing um, Mm. in terms of, basically pulling people out of their homes and putting them in these Mm. colonies for whatever he alleges they're doing. Um, Mm. And so pretty is like pissed about this at the time. And he starts to think about how he can get sterilization to be accepted in the state of Virginia and really in the United States. Mm. So along comes a girl named Carrie Buck and this is Carrie Buck's background. So she was born Um, to a mother, Emma Buck, who had a lot of problems, alleged um, drug abuse, alcohol abuse that got left by her husband early on. So she's Mm -hmm. basically left in poverty, raising Mm -hmm. young children. Um, And so Emma Mm -hmm. gets committed. The mom of Carrie gets committed to this Virginia state colony. And Carrie, when she was four was put into foster care with a family named the Mm -hmm. Dobbs. Um, So she's in foster care. She's taken care of by this family. She goes to school until the sixth grade, and then she's taken out to do work around the home for the Dobbs family. And she's a white woman, yes? Yes, these are all white people. people are white people. Okay. These are all white people at this time. So when she is around 16, 17-ish, she got pregnant. And we'll get back to how that happened. But... Probably a penis. mm, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not 100% sure how it works, but I think that that's 
how it works. Yeah. Okay. But it was very scandalous. And so at the time, the family was like, okay, we can't have her here anymore. And so they look into how they can get her committed to the Virginia colony as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So they get her, they, Dr. Purdy sees her and it's like, oh yeah, we'll take her because in his brain, he's already got things going for this is going to be a perfect case for how to get sterilization approved through the court system Mm -hmm. because she, he knows her mother is already there. In the colony. So she doesn't... So okay. First like, generation. You can claim like already generational there. whatever. Yeah. Now mm-hmm. you're getting the second generation of this girl who they can claim is feeble-minded, um, who's now pregnant illegitimately, not married, teenage pregnancy. And now you've got like this third generation in this child who's mm-hmm. yet to be born. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that's exactly what happens. He takes Carrie in. He evaluates her. He decides that she is feeble-minded, which is not at all backed up by her academic record, actually. She was like a B and C student in school. Um, and C's at that time were like 81 to 87%. So <laughs> she was not dumb, but mm-hmm. she was sexually promiscuous, clearly, couldn't control her own inhibitions by this fact. And (sighs) then he's saying, now we can say there's a hereditary connection. So Mm -hmm. he goes um, and petitions for her to be sterilized. And there's like a committee at this Virginia colony that decides who is sterilized and who's not. Although pretty much anybody that goes to the committee, they're just like, yeah, do it. But Mm -hmm. Carrie does um, resist against it. And so when I first was looking at this, um, Supreme Court case is what this turns into, a big Supreme Court mm-hmm. case. Um, I was like, oh, good. Let's find the person that represents Carrie Buck and see what their motives were because maybe we can find some sort of hero in this story. <laughs> but no, 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 we don't. It turns out this is all a setup by this Dr. Purdy. It's his entire idea to have this challenged. And so it's just his buddy that is the lawyer for Carrie Buck. And Imagine that quote, conversation unquote, representing he, her. like, you know, over drinks, decides like, hey, I've got this idea. Will you take this case? Yeah, exactly. I need you to take this case and lose for me so that I can get this. Um, so he, they basically work their way up through the court systems um, and actually, interestingly, another tidbit that I found is that I'm didn't know initially why it was called Buck versus Bell in the Supreme Court case, because Carrie Buck is the um, person petitioning, obviously, so Buck part of that. But Bell was the doctor that took over for Purdy because he died of Hodgkin's disease while the cases were going on. So the new doctor was John Bell, and he took over as superintendent of the colony. So Dr. Purdy never really lived to see this um that see all of his, his evil genius scheme succeed. work out, um, which Carrie I'm like, know, good. Right. Did Carrie know that it, her lawyer wasn't trying to really actually advocate for her? Do you know? I don't know if she specifically talked about that. There was an interview with her like shortly before she died um, with a journalist. And I, from what I read of that transcript, she didn't really talk about that. So she has the baby. She's like 16 or 17. And then they sterilize her after that. Yeah. Then they, then they sterilize her. So apparently the first trial that was held in Virginia only took five hours and the county court upheld this, upheld the sterilization order. Um, Mm. But that wasn't enough, even though they got it in the county court, they wanted it to go all the way to the Supreme court. And so even though they're not really representing Carrie, they appeal the case um, mm-hmm. and it goes all the way up to the Supreme court in 1926. Um, and then in, on May 2nd of 1927 in an mm-hmm. eight to one decision, the court ruled that Carrie Buck could be sterilized. Hmm. Based on what criteria like what well, are they so the, judging that? the majority opinion was written by justice oliver wendell holmes and he basically just goes through what purdy was arguing in the first place so he goes through the buck family that they have this 
generations of cascading problems of people who have illegitimate children who are mentally compromised, morally degraded, the mother, the child, now there's a grandchild that all seem to be, you know, mentally defective based only on the fact that they were poor and Mm -hmm. had kids and were not married. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. so basically they just decide that it's better in this case to sterilize all of these people. So Justice Holmes said in his majority decision, we have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who already sap the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned, in order to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. And he said Mm. about the Buck family, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the the elitism and the it. I'm just struck, too, by the dissonance between the, like, American dream sort of bootstraps mentality that sort of glorifies, like, coming from nothing, living at the same time as this, like, stigmatizing of people who are in poverty and shaming them. And now to now a Supreme court justice saying you don't even have a right to have kids because we don't trust that your kids are going to amount to anything. Like it's just a weird, it's like that, that vision of the like bootstrap myth is so clearly for a certain subset of people and Mm -hmm. not something that is extended to other people. And is, I mean, there's a, ton of research that shows that it's not even true like it's not a true thing it's it is definitely a myth um so i don't know i'm just really struck by the arrogance of that like oh so i bet every one of your ancestors was just you know god's gift to humanity and (laughs) nobody all of your progeny are the world's best people i mean it just it's well any of us could go back in our families and find an individual that would have fallen into one of these categories. I mean, I had a great grandpa who was an alcoholic. So that was commonly thought of as a reason to commit people for alcoholism, addiction, whatever. And so, you know, just get rid of that person. And then, yeah. I mean, and just just, the idea of the list of things like epileptic, alcoholic, whatever the list is like then being synonymous with worthless, like you have nothing to offer anyone you have nothing to offer society if you fall into one of these categories is just so unbelievably cruel and wrong. Right. Just and well, and our wrong. categorizations then obviously have been proven to be ridiculously wrong. A lot of these colonies at the time started out as colonies for epileptics. And that's one thing that I found baffling researching mm-hmm. this is that epilepsy today is such a manageable medical disease that has zero percent to do with somebody's ability to exist in society or have you know children or contribute yeah Mm -hmm. at all and so the fact that that was one of the main categories then Mm -hmm. is just even more troubling now that we have time to look back on it and that's the huge problem it just seems like these categories were constructed to be super flimsy. So you can just like make them, they, they can be nets that you can extend to catch whatever people you want to catch in them. They are not yeah. real. Like, I wonder to the degree, I wonder to what degree, like Oliver Wendell Holmes or Dr. Purdy or whatever, that they believed these categories to be real and true. I don't know. Right. And I honestly, part of me doesn't really care, but it's, it, because the impact is so awful, but yeah. trying to think about how these logics keep living even up until today, how these ideas just keep going. It, I think it is helpful to try to pick apart and understand where these people got their ideas and what 
to what degree they really held them or to what degree they were using them as instruments of just not having to deal with people they didn't want to deal with. Yeah. And then how can we question our own views and really be critical about them and wonder, are we doing the same thing? Because that quote by um, Holmes, the three generations of imbeciles are enough was like the rallying cry of the eugenics movement after that. Uh, Um, Thanks, Ollie. There's a really great, well, we can put a link to this um, NPR uh, segment in, that was in 2019 um, in their Hidden Brain. Mm. I, um, I don't know if it's a podcast or if it's just a segment of the NPR show, but by um, Shankar Vedatam. I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong. Um, Shankar but- Vedantam. Yeah, yeah. He, it is yeah. like a segment that reoccurs. I think there is a podcast actually that he has. Yeah. Yeah, so he does the, a whole um, episode on this that's really great. And he talks about um, mm-hmm. the interview of Carrie Buck that was done then in shortly before her death in 1980. So, oh, And this is what we're saying, like how close this is yeah, to we us still. Like we yeah. were born in 1980. Um, but she said, you know, after the decision of the Supreme Court, then Carrie is taken back to the Virginia colony for the surgery. Um, She's taken in for the operation, anesthetized, you know, cut open, tubes are tied. She was Mm -hmm. 21 years old. Mm -hmm. And the interviewer asked her at this time, like, do you remember how you felt? And she said, well, I didn't feel too good over it. And she said, were you sad? And she said, yeah, I was sad because I wanted to have children. And she was married, Mm -hmm. um, Twice after that, um, the other things pertinent to this story that I said we'd get back to with her pregnancy is that it was, I don't know if it was known at the time, but it definitely came out later. And apparently Carrie was always very clear about how her pregnancy happened. And it was not that she was just 16 and having sex and promiscuous as they would have liked to claim, which even if she did, not at all. A justification for sterilization. But as it turns out, she was raped by her Mm. foster parent's nephew. (laughs) So she was left home alone at the age of 16 when they went out of town. The nephew came over, raped her. She got pregnant. Her foster family Mm. thought that this was going to look bad on them. And so then they set up this whole thing about getting her committed to the Virginia colony because she's promiscuous, just like her mother. See, it's genetic. Let's get her in there and then cover up this whole family shenanigan because of it. Um, Additionally, Carrie had a younger sister named Doris, who was also then brought to the Virginia colony on the grounds that quote, sooner or later, she will become the mother of illegitimate children. She was 12. She was 12 years old and she was sterilized a year and a half later. She was told by medical staff that she needed to have her appendix removed. (gasps) And she was taken at the age of 14 and sterilized and did not learn until decades later that that is what had been done in her supposed appendectomy. That it reminds me, you had taught us about Fannie Lou Hamer and that she, this, something mm-hmm, similar happened mm-hmm. to her and she called it a Mississippi appendectomy. Yes. Yeah. Like a, as a kind of nickname for these yep. sterilizations yeah, that, that happen. I mean, it's bad enough happened. Like to know that it was legal and that they could do it to you is bad enough. But then to know that they could do it to people and then not even tell people that they had done it. Yeah. Is, is next level. Yeah. Yeah, and this happens commonly throughout the history of forced sterilizations, and wow. we'll get more into some of that. Um, you had said before that how widespread this was among mm-hmm. all of these policymakers and politicians and wealthy people, but the acceptance mm-hmm. of this was also really widespread among the general population. We've mm-hmm. talked before about how it's really hard to find that kind of data, like what people thought, how many people really had Mm. eugenic beliefs and were involved in this. But there was this tiny little um, thing that I found from a 1937 Fortune magazine poll. And this poll found that two-thirds of respondents supported eugenic sterilization of, quote, mental defectives. 
63% supported sterilization of criminals, and only 15% of those polled opposed sterilization of both categories. Mm. So who knows how those people were selected, how they responded to the poll. I'm sure there's all sorts of statistical issues with that, but still. It can't be, like, that shows that there was some degree of widespread acceptance. Yeah, yeah. Very widespread Uh, political acceptance. So, so, um, we, I mentioned earlier that California was the second state to, Mm -hmm. um, have laws for compulsory sterilization. And California just takes the sterilization thing and runs with it for like decades and decades. Some of the upcoming Mm -hmm. issues we're going to talk about, um, in specific populations were all California. But I want to end on California really being the model for Hitler and Nazi Germany's eugenics I, I regime. Didn't know where you were going with that sentence, but it wasn't there. No, wow, <laughs> not and it's not wow. good. Um, okay. So, in 1933, right after Nazis and Hitler took over in Germany, the very first law that was passed by the Reichstag was for the sterilization of the hereditarily diseased. Um, And Hitler said, there is one state today in which at least weak beginnings towards a better conception of citizenship are noticeable. Of course, it is not in our model German Republic, but the United States. And he's referring to getting these eugenic sterilization ideas from them. Because in 1935, eugenics records office leader, this is the eugenics records office, is an American office, um, Harry Laughlin was invited to attend the International Eugenics Conference in Germany. He couldn't go, but he sent a diagram that he had made that was a pedigree of a feeble-minded woman sterilized by the state of California. And showing basically how you could go back through these people's pedigrees and find out, you know, that these are the people that you want to get rid of. And it said, mm. the, chart, the chart shows how a woman born to a mother deemed by state officials to be neurotic and feeble-minded and a father termed a drunkard and gambler with low mentality um, was sterilized by removing her ovaries, which was a permissible form of, as they called it, asexualization under California's mm. law. So that was prevented, presented in the International Eugenics Conference under Nazi rule. And then mm. I also found, and I um, don't have a lot of details on this, but that the Rockefeller Foundation helped to found the German eugenics program and even funded research by Joseph Mengel before <sighs> he went to work in Auschwitz. Uh, like... Uh, what the uh, horrible mm. ick. Mm. I think I may have said this before too on another episode. I can't remember. I know I've talked about it with you. Maybe, maybe I'm thinking of another conversation, but I have wondered why it took the United States so long to get into mm. world war two so many times and why it took Pearl Harbor for that to happen. Like why we didn't just see what they were doing to the Jews and be like, we have to go over and help. Well, obviously if you know this history and you know what was going on with eugenic thoughts and sterilization in the United States at the time, that wasn't a big concern. So far removed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mm-hmm. far removed from what we were doing at all. Um, there's an author, Adam Cohen, who wrote a book um, that is called Imbeciles. <laughs> is the title of it. (laughs) The Supreme Court, American Eugenics, and the Sterilization of Carrie Buck. So Mm. it's a very, Mm. very in-depth look at this whole issue. It's 402 Mm. pages long. Um, So if anybody is interested in getting real, (laughs) real into this, pick up this Mm. book by Adam Cohen. But he did an interview about this book and talks about how the Nazis borrowed from the U.S. eugenics sterilization program. And he says, we were really on the cutting edge. We were doing a lot of this in the 1910s and 1920s. Um, Mm -hmm. Indiana adopted the first sterilization law in 1907. We were writing eugenic sterilization statutes that decided who could be sterilized. And then there were also people writing a lot of pro-Aryan theory in books, people like Madison Grant, who had a very popular book at the time called The Passing of the Great Race. 
where he talked about the superiority of the Nordic people, as he called them, and how they were endangered by all the brown people and non-Nordics who were taking over. And then Grant kind of ties this into what we started this episode in talking about immigration law in the 1920s mm-hmm. and the 1924 immigration law and its caps on, you know, countries of origin, which was really what prevented Anne Frank from entering the U.S. Mm-hmm. And he said, while mm-hmm. I was working on this book, I uncovered Otto Frank repeatedly writing to the State Department, begging for visas for himself and his wife and his two daughters, Margot and Anne, and was turned down. And that was because there were now these quotas in place. If they had not been, it seems clear that he would have been able to get visas for his whole family, including his daughter, Anne Frank. And he says, so when we think about the fact that Anne Frank died in a concentration camp, we're often told it was because the Nazis believed the Jews were genetically inferior, that they were lesser than Aryans. That's true. But to some extent, Anne Frank died in a concentration camp because the U.S. Congress believed that as well. I just chills. Just- yeah. Yeah. Uh. So, I mean, I think that's why... Mm-hmm. It's just so important to think about how all of these things like trickle up from individual beliefs to conversations to forming, you know, there were these human betterment Mm. societies that formed across states and then Mm. passing laws about these colonies and then sterilizations and then moving on to the Supreme Court. I mean, Mm. it, it becomes something that you mm-hmm. just from the outset are confused as to how it happened. But when mm-hmm. you look back at the history, mm-hmm. it happens from these individual ideas, which is why it's so important to look at mm-hmm. where, where things are going right now. Um, you asked me well, when think- we recorded this before, <laughs> oh, like yeah. how researching mm-hmm. this history has made me like rethink um, some of my own thoughts about these issues. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the biggest ways is just that how easily mm-hmm. this can happen and how a lot of these programs like birth control and reproductive rights that we talked about in the last episode mm-hmm. can be thought of as progressive. And maybe these colonies and homes could be thought of as ways of trying to help like people in society that needed mm-hmm. assistance. But if you aren't really careful about what Mm -hmm. the underlying motives are and what the values are that are supporting these programs, Mm -hmm. they turn ugly so quickly. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to see, especially then where the people who were affected by them, um, people of color and poor people are now so suspicious Mm -hmm. of public health programs because Mm -hmm. of their history that we don't understand that they do because they were affected by them. So mm-hmm. just a much more nuanced issue when you really get For into sure. all of it. Yeah. I, I think that has been something that I didn't expect to have start up for me, but is a, like a real appreciation of that nuance and the, the reasons why people might be apprehensive or reject programs or quote, assistance or science or whatever's happening now because of these suspicions, which are really well-founded, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, and I think the other piece of it, you know, you come from the world of public health and I come from the world of education as a former teacher and education professor. And, and I think about how little, like if we said to people on the street, like 1920s, tell me about the 1920s in the United States. I think people like would flappers. say like flapper girls, right? <laughs> right. Like it. Why is great that Gatsby. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Flappers. <laughs> Instead of like, oh, really super intense systemic structural racism and classism. Like mm-hmm. th- like this, it's, it's so instructive to learn about this period of time in our country's history to understand today better. Mm-hmm. And knowing about like dresses with fringe and bob haircuts doesn't help us get there you know because think about when we were talking about voting rights like the 1920s is also peak ku klux klan time and Mm -hmm. the like all of these voting rights restrictions that were laid out and you know all of this is happening at the same time it makes me Mm -hmm. just like nauseous to think about Mm -hmm. the 1920s um by the way i know you always (laughs) love um slamming iowa a little bit since that's where we're both from 
Yeah. And I, I teach a class about the history of anti-Black racism in the state. And there's this one primary source that I've used a bunch that comes from a 1924 Sioux City directory. Sioux City is mm-hmm. a, a city in the like Northwest, like Western part of the state. And it's not like a huge city, you know, so this quote's kind of amazing. But this is like their marketing materials in 1924 to recruit people to move to Sioux City. And okay. it just so perfectly fits with everything you said today. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sioux City is the metropolis of the Northwest. Just like marketing materials. <laughs> it's not really a metropolis. Not true. Um, where <laughs> the farmer, the rancher, and the captain of industry join hands to make a market for the world's greatest agricultural region. The city has a population of 86,000, over 96% of whom are white. Mm. And they're saying that as like, Come, you know, like, isn't that great? (laughs) The foreign element composed for the most part of Scandinavians and British subjects form a stable class of citizens, hardworking and thrifty. Perhaps no other city the size of Sioux City has so few undesirables. Mm, Yikes. Yeah. I mean, so (laughs) we'll link to all of these things the articles will link to the NPR interview to Adam Cohen's book, Imbeciles, um, information about the Supreme Court case, Buck v. Bell. Okay. There's also a website that we'll put on there that is really interesting. It was compiled by students at the University of Vermont, and there's a ton of work behind this. And it's the Eugenics Compulsory Sterilization in 50 American States. And they mm. have links to each individual state and their history of eugenics and forced sterilizations. They have the period sterilizations concert occurred where they had like patterns of who was sterilized, the rates of sterilizations, the passage mm-hmm. of laws, the groups that were involved, um, who were the proponents, what institutions were involved. So anyway, really, really interesting if you want to go and look up your individual state and oh, see yeah. what history that has. And there's a ton of work that went into all of this. So that's awesome. That's a really Do you good know site. offhand the last like the last year that forced sterilization was legal? Please oh, tell uh, me it's not well here's the thing. Legal. Here's the thing. So you would think that at some point Buck versus Bell would have been overturned. Yeah. It has actually never been formally overturned as law. Um, it yeah. fell out of favor, obviously, after World War II. But then we'll <laughs> talk about like this whole neo-eugenics movement that occurred after World mm-hmm. War II and how mm-hmm. there was also this huge amount of sterilizations that took place later. Um, so between mm-hmm. by like the early 60s, it was over 60,000 people that had been forcibly sterilized in the United States. Mm-hmm. But... Between the 60s and then the end of the 70s, estimations of up to 80,000 more sterilizations had taken place under specific programs, which is what we're going to talk about next time. And then we will also talk about some really terrible things that were going on and probably in some places still going on, but like in California prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, in LA County hospitals in the seventies, eighties, and even in the prison system into the like 20 teens, like just in the last decade happening. And also we'll have to bring in then the discussion of the whistleblower that, um, talked about all of the abnormal hysterectomies being performed at women in ICE detention at the border, um, colonies currently like 2020 kinds of things so formally it has never stopped it's still Mm -hmm. it is still going on it was never overturned there was a supreme court case in 1942 Mm -hmm. that was skinner versus oklahoma that kind of weakened buck versus bell but it was specifically about compulsory sterilization of male inmates and how that Mm -hmm. violated the 14th amendment clause and so it wasn't just like a wide stop to it and definitely didn't uh, um, overturn compulsory sterilization in other categories so Mm -hmm. yeah i hate to say that it is has been going on kept going Mm -hmm. on probably is still going on now Mm -hmm. and we'll Mm -hmm. talk about a lot of that so if people want to watch a couple of things before the next um, episode, mm-hmm. if you're interested and have time, there is a documentary called Belly of the Beast about forced sterilizations in California prisons. It's available on an app called Canopy, K-A-N-O-P-Y, that you can get if you have institutional access, but also if you have a public library card, um, you can That's get awesome. to it through there, which is really great. And then there's a 
um, documentary called No Mas Bebes, which I'm saying wrong. I don't speak Spanish. Sorry. I'm the worst. No Mas Bebes. No Mas Bebes. It's not too far off. Um, That is on Vimeo. It's $5.99 to rent it. I highly recommend renting it, but Mm. it's about sterilizations that took place in LA County hospitals um, in the Mm. 70s and 80s, I believe, but about the court case that was brought on behalf of those women that they lost, I will say, but that led to Mm. some other things. Anyway, it's really, really moving. And we're going to talk about both of those things. So if you have time to sit down and watch those, I think it's really worthwhile. So We'll talk about that next time. Man. Well, thank you. I I mean, truly, even though I know we had talked about some of this before, I still like learned so much today. And I appreciate you doing all the like work for this because it I'm sure it's not easy to read and watch stories about this, but th- those are the histories that are are even more important to learn, are the ones that are hard because yeah. we don't want this to keep happening and we don't want this to happen again. And we don't want to get caught up in the same, you know, white lady, especially for like quote liberal or progressive politics that, that lead to things like this. So mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. Okay guys. Have Thanks. a great day, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Try. Take care. Okay. <laughs> okay. See you soon. Bye. Bye.